Good morning. Our teaching text this morning comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. You guys have any good costume ideas? Uh, my kids are just talking about it nonstop. Um, so I got to figure. I got to figure out what I can be. And and you know, just to be honest, this is sort of part of my hardship. Just a little window into my soul. Um, you know, having a beard limits a lot of the costumes that you can pull off because you know a lot of people don't have a have a beard. And so um, I'm not willing to shave this because underneath my face, just not happy with it. Sans beard. Um, so there's a little of my insecurities just to start off the sermon. I didn't plan any of this. This is just all free. Maybe we should just pray and start. Let's pray. I got a few nods there, a lot of agreement. Amen. Okay. Heavenly Father, uh, this, yeah, these invitations are so powerful and strung together. They, um, yeah, they make a really compelling vision of life, even if it at times feels impossible to actually live it. So I pray that you would help us. I pray you would help me, that you would... um, Push aside for us in your grace the things that are distracting us right now, the things that are, um, I guess we can't totally do away with the things that are weighing down our minds and hearts, but I pray that you would step into those burdens with us and just give us a sense of lift and uh, an awareness of your nearness and your peace so that we could contemplate your word together and meditate on it and, and not just have ideas about it, but actually be changed into the type of people who are, who are living this out and doing it together. So we need your help. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to come into every uh, crevice of this morning, into this entire space, into all the kids' rooms, Lord. Um, and, uh, yeah, that you would just give us ears to hear your word and understand it and then follow it. And in Jesus' name, amen. So... <clears throat> I've been thinking about this, this moment this week that's actually not directly uh, tied to, to Romans 12, but we're, we're going to get there in not too much time. But have, have you thought very much about this moment where the Apostle Peter, who ends up becoming the one who 
Uh, Christ says, I'm going I'm to use you to build my church. You're going to be like a rock that the, the church is, is built on. This moment where the apostle Peter is, is in the courtyard uh, after Jesus has been arrested and they've taken Jesus to the house of the high priest. Uh, this is the moment of Peter's famous uh, betrayal, his famous denial of Jesus. And even if you haven't read the Gospels very much, you, you probably have heard about this or, um, or seen it you know, portrayed in, in a movie. Uh, Peter gets asked in relatively quick succession uh, if he knows Jesus, first by a, a young girl around this, this fire, uh, and then two, two more times. And I've often wondered what it was that made Peter flinch in that moment. What makes him deny, deny knowing Jesus? And I guess I've kind of always assumed uh, that it was some mixture of fear and embarrassment, um, that he was not willing for some reason, to suffer with Jesus. Some mixture of fear and embarrassment, not willing to suffer with Jesus. But um, several weeks this time, kind of out of the blue, this, an, an incident involving uh, a man named Malchus and his ear uh, has, has been brought to my attention. And it made me think that maybe I have misunderstood Peter's reaction in that moment. Maybe I've misunderstood Peter's fear. So just so you know, Malchus... Uh, was the assistant to the high priest. And he was a part of the large armed party that comes to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, uh, Jesus and his disciples had been praying there. Uh, some of them had fallen asleep. Jesus had been mildly frustrated by this fact. He's like, this is a big important night for me. You guys are falling asleep. Can you not wait with me in prayer? They're like, we really can't. We're sleeping here. Um, and then all of a sudden, these, this arm, armed group comes to arrest Jesus with torches and weapons. So all of a sudden, very shockingly, I'm sure they're awake now, the disciples are outnumbered, they're outarmed, they were surprised, they were ambushed. But in that moment, interestingly, Peter does not flee. It's almost easy to laugh at him for what he does do, but he does not flee. In this moment where they're out, out, outgunned, outmatched, surprised, and ambushed, Peter draws his sword and attacks he cuts off Malchus's ear. This guy was a fisherman, not a trained fencing swordsman by any stretch. So you can imagine he didn't just like, you know, lift the ear off there as like a warning for what's to come. He's trying to hack this guy's head and he misses and gets his ear. So that, that's, that's what we should, we, we should see happening here. So he cuts off Malchus's ear. Now, Jesus immediately does a miracle of healing Malchus's ear, which sort of had to frustrate Peter and maybe humble him, embarrass him to some degree. It's like, hey, you've missed the point. <laughs> you've missed the point of what's going on here. Uh, you're misreading things, especially misreading the way of Jesus. So Peter is guilty of misreading things. He's guilty of lashing out in violence. Um, he's guilty of having bad aim. But he's not really guilty of cowering in fear. So what happens between that kind of foolish moment of, uh, but, but even seemingly courageous moment of lashing out to the courtyard where he denies knowing Jesus? And I, as I was reading Romans 12 over and over this week and hearing this description of love and what it actually requires and what it actually looks like in, in, in practice, uh, it changed how I, how I see this story a little bit. Love is really challenging. It is really humbling. 
It will barely work at all on human resources alone. It absorbs wrong. It suffers. It does not have the flash of retaliation. It does not have that electric pride of revenge. If Jesus' life was a movie and you didn't know anything about it, and you've been following it up to the point where Peter draws his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear, like especially as Americans, you might be like, yeah, get him, not going down without a fight. You don't know where the story, like imagine you don't know where the story's going. That might be the moment that you come out of your seat. We've been so brought up on the myth of redemptive violence that sometimes we think it's the only way. And there's this moment where Jesus catches Peter's eye after three times in a row. He's denied even knowing him. After all of his bluster and claims that I'll go, I'll go to death with you, after drawing his sword and cutting off Malchus's ear, he denies him three times. And, and it says that there's a, a note that marks that Jesus looked and caught Peter's eye. I think about that moment. And I don't think that that look holds disappointment because Peter didn't have the courage to fight. I think that it was he wasn't willing in that moment to surrender. The courage to fight actually might have been really easy. The courage to surrender, much more difficult. To surrender to the way of love. The way of, of beating back the powerful with power. The way of overcoming violence with stronger violence. The way of the sword had been chosen a million times over. It would be chosen a million times more. But Jesus was up to something else. He was up to the way of redemptive love. He was going to take the worst that the world had to offer and come back with something new. To absorb it. He was going to live out love in all of its challenges, in all of its difficulties, in all of its like least inspirational moments. Especially initially. So even Jesus' closest friends wanted Jesus to violently oust the oppressors that were present in Israel. Like we know because of your miraculous power that you have the ability to do this. You could fight power with power in this moment. Would you please free us from these oppressors? And Jesus knew that that would work for a moment, that that might work for a generation. But you know what? The very next generation, you're going to need another violent overthrow. The next generation, you're going to need another revolution. So he begins to start something that cuts against the grain, that subverts the way of the world, that subverts the way of the sword, the way of redemptive love, the way of sacrificial grace. The way of Jesus was different. And you expect me to say that. Got my Britney Spears microphone on and it's Sunday morning. I'm a preacher. What did you, what did you think I was going to say? But is that real, does that way realistically work? I mean, kind of we can, I kind of can understand where Peter's coming from. It's like, things are getting awful. This is a moment where an innocent man is being arrested. It's time to stand up for justice. Enough talk. Let's get the swords out and cut some people's ears off. Jesus' disappointment with Peter is not that he doesn't have the courage to fight. He does have the courage to fight. It's that he doesn't have the courage to surrender. <laughs> He doesn't have the courage to absorb, to take it, to come back with something else, to take revenge out of circulation. 
That phrase comes from um, N.T. Wright, one of the yeah, leading scholars on the New Testament, um, who, I, who I mention a lot in here. But I love what he says about this, um, about this way of confronting evil that Jesus has. Uh, he actually says it commenting on our passage in Romans 12, but it relates to the whole way that Jesus operates. Listen to this. We should note that this does not mean going soft on evil. Saying you shouldn't take revenge isn't a way of saying evil isn't real or that it didn't hurt after all or that it doesn't matter. Evil is real. It often does hurt, sometimes very badly indeed and with lasting effects, and it does matter. Because we believe in a creator God who made a a good and lovely world. We believe that everything which defaces and distorts, damages and spoils part of that creation is not just another variety of goodness, but is actually its opposite, evil. The question is, what are we going to do about it? There are many other things to be said about God's moral governance of the world, but at the center of the Christian story stands this claim, that when human evil reached its height, God came and took its full weight upon himself, thereby exhausting it and opening the way for the creation of a new world altogether. Revenge keeps evil in circulation, whether in a family or a town, or in an entire community like the Middle East or Northern Ireland, the culture of revenge, unless broken, is never-ending. Both sides will always be able to justify further atrocities by reference to those they themselves have suffered. You probably know that a man walked into a house of worship yesterday, a synagogue at prayer, Shouting distorted, racist, hateful words and murdering 11 people, injuring others as he went. Our minds reel how to process this. We ache with pain or maybe we think we at least should. We kind of have to be still even to let the horror of it sink in for us because there's just been so much recently. I mean, even this, this very week, this is on the tales of a, of a mass, massive bombing scare. This is on the tales of a, of a man trying the doors of an African-American church, finding it locked, and then going into a grocery store, and then shooting random people. The list goes on and on, right? This, this shooting is on the heels of the shooting before it, on the heels of the shooting before it. It's like, we certainly have more information flowing at us in a, in a more constant way. It's like my heart and mind can't even catch up with all of this. Our responses, if we're honest, also can be pretty troubling. We, we find we're often using these moments to dig further into our divisions rather than come out into new space. Like verbally, we're like drawing the sword and going after Malchus. <laughs> what are we going to become? What are we going to become? I, think, I want you to think about that. What are you going to become? What are we as a community going to become? What are we as a city going to become? What are we as a nation going to become? Like if, if there's not a conscious attending to that question, what are we going to become? The, the sliding pull, the gravity of the world will have you and will pull you in something and it will be the way of the sword. It'll be the way of Malchus's ear. It'll be the way of further entrenchment in our divisions. It will be the way of, of, of violence, a violent ideology and violent practice. 
What will it take for us to experience a real and sweeping change? And how about this? Is the way of Jesus realistic for our time? This, it's, it's one thing to assent to these ideas when we're together in this space. How on earth can you show love if the other person isn't showing any? How can you choose forgiveness if the other person isn't even admitting that they're wrong? It's like, first let me show you just how wrong you are. Then I can think about forgiving you. Peter's way of grabbing the sword and slashing is what we keep choosing. Jesus' way is much harder. Right? This is not an inspirational talk on how the way of love is, is a way of ease. Jesus' way is much harder, but it does take revenge out of circulation and make space for something else. The easiest thing in the world is to retreat into our tribes, into our echo chambers, to shout at or tweet at one another. But how could we really live something different? I love how Eugene Peterson translated this section from Romans 12. I think it's, it's helpful. It's just, I want to give you another picture of it, another sort of set of colors to, to see this through. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled in a flame. Be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it and you get along with everyone, don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if we see... If you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. Simple enough. You guys got this? The Apostle Paul, right? He's writing to Rome. It's a different time. It's a complex city. It's the capital of this empire certainly dealing with, with tensions as real as the tensions were in the middle of. And he's been laying out for 11 chapters and now the beginning of 12, the gospel of Jesus, the good news that God has broken into the world with a new way, that he's absorbed the wrong, that he's offering a resurrected type of life, that he's offering a new community, literally a new type of community that, what, that isn't based on the, all the ways that we've always categorized and classified one another, but it's based on the way of love, that Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, that people from all different walks of life, every tribe and tongue and nation are invited to come around the table and to know that, that blood has been shed for, 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 their, for their unity, for their love, to be in the same family. He's been writing to unpack the message of the gospel, and now he's getting into how you live the gospel, how you live this way of love, the way of Jesus. When you read Romans 12, this punchy list of invitations, instructions, commands about how to live in love, what you're hearing 
Like people sometimes try to, theologians sometimes argue about, is there a division between Jesus, meek and mild, carrying lambs, teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and then the Apostle Paul with all this heady theology? Absolutely, uh, that, that is overblown. There's not a division between them. As a matter of fact, Paul in this chapter is showing how you live Jesus' greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds great. How on earth do you do it? Romans 12, 9 through 21. You want some practical, spiritual practices that can become habits in your life that will help you live the Sermon on the Mount? Romans 12, 9 through 21. This is, this is it. Here, here they are. It's a way that in many settings, especially at first, will look foolish. It will look strange in our world. And many of us have honestly not seen very much of it modeled. But it is a way of real life, genuine humanity, a way of love, a way of renewal, a way of new possibility of healing and forgiveness. So we're going to just say a few things about this list of instructions. And here's the thing. On one level, they're so straightforward, you probably don't need much more information about them. Practice hospitality and you're going to get better at it. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, and you're going to be pulled out of your cage of selfishness into a wider space of love. Do not take revenge as delicious as it might feel in words or actions, and all of a sudden you're actually practicing the way of Jesus. We don't necessarily need more information on, on, on what these things mean, but on the other hand, each of these phrases... <laughs> Could be its own chapter in a book, could be its own study. We could have an entire sermon series on practicing hospitality. We could have an entire sermon series on, on, on the art of forgiving and loving our enemies. That's dangerous, right? Where are we going to go in this sermon? Is it going to be the longer version? I'd like to know. The beauty is that you can go out today. You can go out today and begin obeying these words, living out these commands, following these invitations, and it will have life in it. And also, you can spend your entire life obeying these practices and never exhaust them, never come to the end. And there's a lot of beauty in that. So I want to I draw your attention to a couple of quick things that I think will help you. Instead of teaching each individual practice in all of its thoroughness, which would be impossible in the time we have allotted, I want to give you a couple of things that will help you as you approach this list of how to live Jesus' greatest commandments, how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how to love your neighbor as yourself, even in our world, even now. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the bookends of this passage, how, how it starts and how it ends. The passage starts like this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. You, you might hear this translated, love must be real, it can't be faked. Peterson just a minute ago said, love, let love come from the center of who you are. Let love come from the center of who you are. Then hate what is evil. Cultivate your affections so that your love is full of integrity and you take no joy whatsoever in evil things. You even hate them. Right? This is not an invitation to hate people. This is an invitation to hate evil things. Instead, cling to what is good. Hold on to it for dear life. So there's an instruction to cultivate our affections, to love from a sincere place of integrity, to, to, to resist and put away things that are evil, and to cling for dear life to what is good. If you're wondering how on earth in our pluralistic, postmodern, post-everything world you understand what is good and what isn't, Go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. That is a template 
for how to discern what is good. If you missed it, last week we went over that in detail. Cling to what is good. Cultivate the affections of your life. That's, that, that's how the passage starts. And the middle is, is, is going to be how you do that. The practical steps of how, how you do that. But the passage ends with this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The passage begins with a command on your affections. The passage ends with a warning not to be overcome by evil. There's a command on cultivate the affections of your life. Cultivate what you love. Cultivate what you want most. Cultivate what you're willing to resist. And then there's a warning at the end not to be overcome. And here's the connection I want us to see. What you give your affection to will eventually overwhelm your life. What you give your affection to eventually will overwhelm your life. One of the best teachings I've ever heard uh, on, on what an idol is, right? Something that's a substitute God that you put in your place is that all idols in the very beginning, they promise you everything and ask nothing. Like, I'm going to give you, I'm gonna, like, t- take one, right? I'm going to give you courage, relaxation, and peace, and an overestimation of your own wit. And all you have to do is drink this glass of wine. Courage, peace, the ability to cross the room and, 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 and strike the conversation. Out, and it asks nothing of you. right? But if you put that in some sort of central place in your life, eventually that thing is going to start costing you more and more. Until eventually it's going to cost you everything and give you nothing. This is always the way of any substitute God. It begins by offering you everything and costing you nothing. And in the end, it costs you everything and and gives you nothing. A mouthful of sand. What you give your affections to be cultivated by, that is eventually going to come to define your life. Here's the thing. If you don't learn to hate evil, you eventually start to make peace with it in certain places. Like, well, that's a little bit justified. You don't know what these people are like. Then you become friends with it, and then it becomes at home with you, and then it overcomes you. If your affections, the fabric of your heart, the inner workings of your desires, if that is cultivated somewhere away from God's known presence and God's revealed word, there's a good chance that your affections aren't being shaped by God at all. So if your affections are not being shaped by God at all, what are they being shaped by? Well, there's a bunch of different options. They might be being shaped by your news channel. That will probably lead to great fruitfulness and peace. Or they're being shaped by your Twitter feed. Also, great option. Hashtag disaster. Or they might be shaped by your work schedule, the busyness of this city, keeping your head above water, a life of stress. And, and so your affections are being cultivated in this sort of crucible of, of performance. Or they might be shaped by the stories that you hear regularly. Or they might be shaped by the people that you most admire and want to be accepted by. Their values become your values. That's where your affections are cultivated. Or they might be shaped by the lie that has a lot of electric pride in it itself. That you don't let anyone tell you what to think or believe, Right? You're one of those people. I don't let anyone tell me what to think or believe. Yes, you do. Even that idea is not super original. (laughs) 
Whatever is teaching you what and how to love, whatever is shaping your affections, is going to have a large bearing on what ultimately defines your life. On what overwhelms you, on what overcomes you, or on what you overcome the obstacles in your life by. There's a, there's a call to cultivate your affection, and there's a warning that whatever is being cultivated is going to come to define you. That's the bookends of this. The second thing I want to mention is that there's a path to formation that's present here, and it's present in each one of these phrases of instructions and sort of banners that raise up. You You want to know what the way of Jesus looks like? Practice hospitality. You want to know what the way of Jesus looks like? Bless those who persecute. You want to know what the way, and there's these banner instructions, but in each one of them, we need to read a pattern of formation. Because it's so easy to make mental assent to these things without actually participating. We've mentioned this before. Sometimes we, and especially like even the way the room is set up here, you're, like you're here to receive information. And what we can do is make the mistake that the buzz of agreement is the same thing as a life of formation. You can say, I agree with the idea of hospitality. I agree with the idea of enemy love. And so because I have the buzz of agreement, I think I'm doing it. I think I'm actually living that life formed in that way. These are compelling ideas. Even just hearing them, you can sense there's a direct, palpable energy in them. But the buzz of agreement is a long way from the formation of our character. And the formation of our character, of course, is what shapes what you do in the secret places. The formation of your character is what shapes what you do when when your life is squeezed. When you find yourself in unexpected tension, right, it's the formation of your character that determines what you're going to do in those moments. So from any one of these phrases, what I want us to see is we have to see them going from ideas to habits. It's, it's, very, it's, very, it's very simple. Like we think of these things as ideas. They're actually commands. Like Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll, you'll follow my way. And this is a practical outworking. Like if you're looking for spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices to follow, to walk in the way of Jesus, here we go. We have them. So from ideas to commands. So the first step is intention. You, have to, you do have to, by the power of the Spirit, engage your will and say, I, I'm willing to recognize I've been living by the way of the sword. I've been living by the way of my industry. I've been living by the way of my family's ethic. I've been living by the way of my Twitter feed or by the way of my news channel, whatever it is. And now I intend to live in the way of Jesus instead, in the way of love. So I engage my will and say, as best I know how, I want to say I'm in to walk in this new way. But intentions, right? Intentions alone are not going to get us very far. I have so many, my past is littered with fabulous intentions, But the intentions that don't become practices just stay intentions, of course, right? So my intentions have to become practices. That means, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, that means taking something like one of these instructions, one of these phrases, and then getting my calendar out for the week and saying, I'm going to schedule this, right? There's huge tension in our life between our deepest values, what we say we're all about, and how we actually live, and that tension is closed, when we begin to schedule out of our deepest values, to make practices. Like I say I want to be generous, but I never actually plan for generosity. I say I want to be hospitable, but I never have anyone over. I, I, I say that I want to be someone who, who's, who's loving those in need, but my life doesn't reflect it in any time spent. 
That creates a, a disorientation. A lot of people have walked away from Christianity saying it doesn't work because of this, the gap between intention and practice. It never closed and they're like, this doesn't work. I had a lot of great ideas. I never did anything, but Jesus must not be real. It's, of course, an oversimplification, but... Any pattern of, of life change that works, it has a vision of what's possible and where you're going. It has practical steps that you take to follow along. It has practices. And then you do it together. You have friendship, community that you're in, in process with. So these commands are how to walk in the way of Jesus. To intend is to say, okay, I'm going to walk in this way. I give myself wholeheartedly to learn it. And then the practices, that's the difference between trying and training between inspiration and actually character formation. It's saying twice a month, right, pick out your number, this might be too many, but say twice a month I'm going to host dinner at our place. And one of those, one of those times is going to be for people that are outside of my normal comfort group of friends. I'm going to be trying to get to know some people that are on the margins of my life, that I, that I, want, I want to bring in, I want to, know, I want to know more. Each week, all right, you put this in your calendar. Each week, I'm going to plan and hold myself accountable to speak blessing over other people, especially blessing over people that I've been in tension with. I'm going to be the first to, to move towards them. I, I know in order for my love to be sincere and not faked, I need, I'm a person who needs times of solitude. Right, that's not just for the introverts. All of you need times of solitude if you want your love to be sincere. But if you don't ever schedule any times of solitude, then you're just going to fake it because life is still happening and people are still coming up and you're just going to plaster on the smile and get through. To be faithful in prayer means I'm going to have to be intentional about how my mornings and evenings are shaped. To be generous to those in need, I have to make plans to see them time to hear them, and I have to budget to have things to offer them. I'm like going to carry you know, this around or that around or, 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 or stop here. And I'm going to make intentional plans in my schedule for how to walk in this way of love. It sounds amazing. Wouldn't it be great? I just want you to know, if you're feeling like, hmm, this is not fun to hear, um, I'm right there with you. Like this is, this is the great work of our lives, pulling together the gap between our intentions and our practices. This is the thing I need the most, this formation of my habits, the formation of my character. Some of you are so wildly gifted in your life. You've been trucking on your gifts your entire life. You've gotten away with remarkably so much that you haven't even had to put some of this stuff into practice because you're really good at what you do. But the thing is, it will catch up. If your gifts outrun your character, eventually your life is over leveraged and collapses. That will be coming. That's not like a mystery, actually. But here's the thing. Very practically, without much more information than we've already shared, you could take any one of these phrases in this passage and plan to make a practice of it. What if you did that just between now and and the end of the year, you just went back to this list every week. And he said, one of these things I'm going to schedule in on a regular basis. Two of these things. I already know sort of I'm, I'm tracking with these two. But I'm, this one I'm, I would never do unless I make an intentional plan for it. 
right? You know, in all like the time and life management stuff, they talk about these, the quadrant of activities that are, that are important but not urgent. They're like critically important and, 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 and no one's ever going to make you do them. Like the phone's never going to ring and someone's going to be like, have a quiet time with God now. No one's ever going to be like, walk down the street that you know the person's at and buy them the food because you know they're, they're asking for it. There's important, non-urgent things that if you don't put them in your calendar, if you don't intentionally schedule, and if you don't do it in community where people know your intentions, you never, ever will. So you can come to this passage with your calendar open. But I also want to say as we close, you can come to this passage with your mind and heart open because this is one of the most, if you let it be, even though it's immensely practical, it is an imagination-stirring practice, a, a passage. What could our world be like? Like that, that, The questions we were asking at the beginning, how would you ever see change? What, and the answer is like pockets of people living this out. That's, that's really the only, I don't know another way, like love and action. Let our imaginations be stirred by the idea of love and action. This is not an ideology, this is a lifestyle. This is not a tweet, this is an embrace. I loved Martin Lloyd-Jones who, who, who spoke on this for like 25 years in the center of London years ago. He, he, he said, primarily Christianity is a way of life. The Christians were first called people of the way. This was not merely because they thought in a particular way, but because they lived in a particular way and because they died in a particular way. So it is vital that we should always proceed from doctrine to practice, from ideology to lifestyle, love and action, but also watching over our own passions. What is the fountain that's forming your desires? If you're not paying attention to that fountain, you are on your way to a breakdown. You are on your way to, to living out of these malformed desires or waking up some way. It's not like, not like a, a breakdown of anxiety or depression or something like that. It's a breakdown of regret of like, I, I spent all this time and for what? I, I, I want to be in reality the person God has called me to be. It's love and action. It's watching over your passions. It's being someone who really moves towards the other. To embody the way of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, but, but even to embody the way of love to those people who are not like you, to those people who would do you harm. To embody the way of love when everything in you says, pull the sword and cut the dude's ear off. That's what this calls for. At this point, with this leadership and this, and this environment, we're past words. We need, and we're right there, right? way of Jesus isn't realistic. You can move towards the other and make space for God. Here's the thing. To do that, you have to believe that God is better at meeting the needs of someone's soul than you are. He is. You also have to believe that God is better at doing justice than you are. That our best, our best version of retaliation is not going to come anywhere close to the thoroughness of God who was also going to, to, to deal with everyone in grace and mercy. We have to believe that God can meet needs better than we can, that God can dole out justice better than we can. We can have our way, we can have the way of the sword, or we can have the way of the cross and resurrection. 
We don't have to guess too much what the way of the sword produces. We see it all the time. Can we make space for God? Can we be peacemakers? Blessed are the peacemakers. They're the ones who see God, who know God, who are making space for him, who are watching their passions, whose love is in action. And you don't have to feel it. <laughs> you don't have to feel it to start. I love N.T. right here. He says, again and again in Christian experience, we discovered that when we behave towards someone as though we really did love them, then to our surprise, love and care and concern for the other person's welfare quickly springs up. We do well to remind ourselves that if we waited until we were quite sure of our motives, that we're, we're completely pure and right, we might never actually get around to doing anything at all. Our imaginations need to be stirred. This is a vision of a, of a life lived in love. But we have to pull the gap between intention and practice together and put this stuff in our schedule, wholeheartedly commit to it. I think it's an embarrassing time to be a Christian in America in some respects. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, but I want to say it's worth it and it's not embarrassing to live in this way. And that's like going out and recapturing the identity of like a certain brand of Christianity like could care less on some level, but People seeing the real Jesus for who Jesus really is is worth everything. Embodying that in a community of love and forgiveness where our intentions match our practices, match our habits, match our character formation, where we're radically generous to one another, where we're showing. You want to know what it means to glorify God? It means for mercy to well up. You want to know what it means to glorify God? It means to forgive even when there's no rational reason that you should forgive and you do it anyway. And you, you let yourself out of the trap and the person that's wronged you out of the trap. It means that like in the, in the face of cancer, you pray for a miracle and then you also believe in the resurrection. You say ultimately the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave is alive in this very community and it's present when we gather in our homes. It's present when we raise our hands and worship. It's here, it's right now. How do you live in it? Romans 12, 9 through 21. Practices. The way of Jesus is worth it. The distorted version of Christianity that's associated with, with, with you know, different places on the political scale. Like, there's no way around. Like, our politics, of course, is our shared life together, too. We're not, we're not pulling out of that, but we're pressing into it with an alternative way. Way of love and mercy, the way of Jesus. We'll have to have resources beyond our, our own ability. I, I, I think we'll have to have the Holy Spirit. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's able to pierce down to the level of our thoughts and intentions, our best beliefs and our real actions. God, I just confess, God, I, I confess the gap in my own I confess on behalf of our church the gap between our intentions and our practices. 
Would you pull them together? And may the motivation for our change not be fear or not be pride, but be love. May we have a sense that we are so loved and accepted by you that we can take the risk of walking in this way together. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and empower your church to live in this way. Empower me, empower empower all of us to live in this way of love. And I pray you'd show each of us the particular work you want to do this morning and having us hear you and respond. Show us, Holy Spirit, how we are to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. Just going to take a few moments of silence, and I want you to ask God this simple, simple question. God, how, how, how are you calling me to respond today? What have I heard that you want me to put into practice? What are you calling me to release? What are you calling me to take up in love? We believe the Holy Spirit will lead, will speak to us, will testify with our spirits because we're children of God if we are united to Christ. So listen for the Holy Spirit and then just in a few moments we're going to come and we're going to receive the meal. We're going to continue worshiping. prepare to come to the table again this morning with the things that the Holy Spirit has been speaking fresh in our minds and hearts I want you to consider I have a a pastor friend who has this phrase that rhymes so helpful 
The gathering place is the practice space for the marketplace. See how it rhymes. Essentially, like what we're doing in here together is a way, a safe place for us to practice also who we're meant to be in the world. So we come to a table every week, and you know who's welcome at this table? People from every tribe and tongue and nation, people from every socioeconomic background, people from every neighborhood, from every walk of life, from people that struggle with anything whatsoever at all. You know the qualifications for coming to this table? Receiving love, receiving grace. None of us come because of our resumes, because we're qualified. We've been qualified by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And hidden in him, we become family. Out of all the fabric of humanity, we were woven into a new tapestry. This is a practice space for our life in the city. Our apartments should begin to embody this reality, that everyone is welcome at the table of Jesus. Our imaginations in our workplace should begin to embody this way of, of blessing those who, who, are, who are trying to climb, literally climb over you to get ahead. Of forgiving those who don't deserve forgiveness. Of showing mercy in impossible places. Of, of, of grieving with those who grieve, even if we barely know them. Of rejoicing in someone else's victory, someone else's promotion. We practice right here. We're reformed right here so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in our city, in our, in our neighborhood, around our tables. That's your calling. It is so high and beautiful, church. You're not just a sermon hearing club. You're a life of Jesus living people. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, Lead us in these moments. Push back the voice of the accuser and let us hear the voice of our Savior. God, for anyone who needs for the first time to run into your love this morning, I pray that they would, that they would know that this body represented by the bread and that your blood represented by the cup was shed, that the way is open for forgiveness and mercy and healing and new life. For us as your church, God, may we respond the way your Holy Spirit is leading us. May we obey this way of love. In Jesus' name, amen. In one moment, church, I'm going to invite you forward to receive the meal. We're going to go back, continue singing. But some of you will need to pray with someone. And, and we have people that are up here at the front that would love to pray with you about something that you need to celebrate in your life or about a need or a burden or about something specific the Holy Spirit's put on your heart this morning. Please Please don't ignore that. I say that to myself even as I'm speaking to you. As you're ready, come and receive communion. Come worship and pray.